The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Click. Very impressive. And we're live. <laughs> right on time, too. It is Thursday, April 15th, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m. And I have a story to tell you. Uh, I woke up yesterday morning and I went outside. I was on my way to get my second vaccine shot. And there was a note under my door from a neighbor whom I had never met before. And the note uh, uh, was from a, uh, two neighbors of mine. And the last time somebody had slipped, a neighbor had slipped a note under my door, it was complaining about the condition of our yard. So I read these <laughs> things with some trepidation. But, um, You're one of those people then? <laughs> I, uh, I once even had a note slipped under my door that said, we don't live in Appalachia. And I want to say just as somebody, um, uh, I know how to spell Appalachia and the person who wrote the note did not. And I almost took a car and jacked it up on on concrete slabs and hung a big sign on it. Welcome to Appalachia. At least we can spell it. But I did not do that because I'm a nice person. Instead, I ignored the hostile note from my neighbor. This note was not hostile. It was uh, very pleasant. My neighbor noticed that we had a pretty uh, robust hand truck in our backyard. And (laughs) she noted that she had a downed tree in her yard and asked whether she could borrow the hand truck and offered by way of recompense, which was totally unnecessary, that we could have as much of the down tree as she wanted. We well, wanted there you because go. she also noticed that I have a lot of wood in my backyard because as you all know, I do stuff with wood. Turns out the down tree <laughs> is a gorgeous maple and it's oh. quite sad that it has uh, had to come down, but it was dead. Um, and uh, so we organized an exchange uh, and uh, I took three large pieces of the stump, and and she has the uh, hand truck for as long as she needs it. And so today, one less, just about 24 hours after my second shot, I had to move three very large tree stump pieces from <laughs> her yard to mine. That's a full city block. And I have to say... I was not feeling a whole lot of COVID shot symptoms until moving the three pieces of maple. Totally Mm. worth it, but it really wiped me out in a way that normally moving wood would not. So for those of you (laughs) taking uh, 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 Pfizer for shot number two, if you are also going to move a dead tree, um, put a little distance between the two. Because remember, folks, we are still not allowed to have fun anymore. Even if you think you're allowed to have fun, we're not allowed to have fun. We are, however, allowed to have Ona Hathaway, who, uh, whose partner in crime you have met many times. 
uh, Scotch Puro, but Ona uh, we have never had on the show, and that is a gross oversight on my part because she is a super wonderful person, and I just want to say a quick word about Ona that has nothing to do with the substance of her work, uh, which I always try to flag for people when it happens. Uh, Ona is a great mentor of serious people. And I cannot tell you how many people have come through Lawfare at various different times uh, uh, talking about uh, the work they did with Ona Hathaway. And these include very, very young people who were not even in law school yet, uh, mm -hmm. but who knew her when they were undergraduates, as well as people who are uh, uh, active duty military who knew her at the Defense Department and uh, uh, when she was when she was in the general counsel's office there mm. on a stint, and wherever Ona goes, uh, there are really great people who uh, look up to her and I and who, whose work she cultivates, and I think that is just one of the coolest things that people can do, and so I've never had a chance to say anything about it, but I wanted to Aww. say something about it now. So Ona, I second it. To the show. I second that. Everyone I know loves. Ona Hathaway and has nothing but wonderful things to say and exactly what Ben said just a wonderful mentor and like a real and I mean besides being a brilliant scholar and having an incredible body of work binder like that you're just a wonderful person so oh, that's, that's so nice to, to hear you guys are so sweet yeah no it's it's that's lovely well I will tell you that it's well, One I'll message you joys. my where to send the check, like later. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know this is going to get expensive. Though. <laughs> so John Bordeaux in the chat reminds me of something important. Uh, Kate and I feel so strongly about the eating on the show issue that came up yesterday that we have actually arranged. It's the Saturday show. We're going to have dinner on the show. There may be guests. There will be, it'll be all finger food. Ethiopian um, food. It's going to be Ethiopian Ooh. food. We have a guest who's going to, going to be, uh, uh, but it's all going to be finger food. And so if you guys are, uh, for all of you, everyone who, who asked the question also has to be grossly offended by Kate's eating on the show the other I day. I ate a bunch of blueberries on, a, oh. on the show and I was eating blueberries and like someone like, not I got someone, hate like mail. 10 people started <laughs> hating on Kate for this. And I just want to say, if you're one of those people, stop watching the show. We don't want you here. It's, <laughs> you're very unpleasant people. Um, uh, and um, so, um, Ona, your work is diverse and, uh, and, and it covers a huge amount of ground. You and I first ran into each other uh, in the very early days of, 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 I guess, probably at the beginning of the Obama administration over a variety of sort of drone strikes, international yeah. conflict issues. Um, but so I was surprised, actually, when a bunch of years later, you and Scott wrote this, I thought, amazing book that was kind of the history of a set of ideas and and how how a group of people kind of came up with what we now think of as international. I mean, that's sort of, you call them the internationalists, but they're right. they're uh, the, the 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 concept of of really regulating 
state behavior in an international yeah. context. And so talk to us about where the idea for this book came from and how you guys scoped the project. Yeah, um, so uh, so thank you so much for all of that. Um, so Scott and I started talking I mean, years ago um, and we, we began by writing an article that was um, taking on the question. So many people sort of say, well, international law is not really enforced. And if it's not enforced, then it's not really law. And so he's a legal philosopher. I'm an international lawyer. We thought, well, you know, this is kind of like a cool project for us to try and take on together, you know, to think about what does the sort of different way in which international law is enforced like what what meaning does that have for it being law does it really have to be enforced to be law what, what impact does that have so we started talking about these ideas led to an article um we wrote called Out outcasting developed this idea of outcasting and there basically we argued is yeah international law is not generally enforced the way that modern domestic state law is enforced you know you don't have police um there to enforce international law um uh, but we said it actually is enforced. It's enforced through this policy, usually um, enforced through this policy called outcasting, where what you do is you create this common benefit, and then the main enforcement mechanism is you take it away, the benefit away from the bad actors. So World Trade Organization, for instance, mm. you know what happens if a state um, doesn't abide by its obligations under the WTO? You don't send in the like WTO police um uh there's no you know uh helicopters that come in and get you basically what happens is you um lose the benefit of the protections of the of the gat um so the other state can countermeasure against you basically break the rules back um in the same amount that you've broken the rules to hurt them so you can they can hurt you back at the same amount that you hurt them that's a basic idea and a lot of international law has this like a lot of international law is like you break the rules, okay, you just don't get the benefit of those rules. So we've worked this all out. Um, and then at the end of that, we're like, oh, we should write a book together. That was fun. Uh, like, we had fun working together. Like, we should write a book together. And they're like, okay, well, what are we going to write? Um, they're like, oh, we're going to do a book about outcasting. So we started playing with ideas about outcasting and various things. So, Explain so, what you mean by outcasting just really quickly. So, so, that, so the outcasting is this idea of like, so in the article we talk about sort of ways in which international law has always been enforced through denying the benefits of, of cooperation from a member. So the article is a little bit crazy. It's hopefully it's sort of a fun read. Um, it, so it has some of, of Scott's influence, as you can as you can imagine. So it has we talk one of the things we talk about is um, how um, uh, in medieval Iceland enforced its domestic law without having any police. And basically what would happen is- yeah, Not just medieval, relatively recently. Well, that's true. Yeah, right. Um, so basically if you broke the rules, there was a kind of law process. So they would have a legal finding that you had broken the rules and then they would um, they would basically banish you. Um, so they would, um, they would outcast you. And sometimes it would be permanent outlawry um, and sometimes it would be um, like a short term, so you, and what you, what happened when you were outcast was basically, you didn't have any protections of the community. So, so people could kill you with impunity. Nobody was allowed to provide you support. Nobody was allowed to feed you, shelter you, et cetera. So they had a way of enforcing the law without having any police or jails or any of the things we think of. 
as um, necessary to law enforcement, they just withdrew the benefits of being a member of the community because you broke the rules of the community. So then we started playing with, well, what are all the various ways in which international law does that too? Um, and we also talk about canon law. So canon law, um, the Catholic canon has something similar um, as well. So at the end of that, we, we thought, okay, well, let's do this book. And then we sort of played with various ideas. And then at one point we realized, well, this whole article is based around this idea, this assumption that you can't enforce international law by sending in the troops, like that you can't just go to war to enforce a treaty. So like, why can't the US go in, you know, when somebody breaks, like has an illegal tariff, why can't you send in the US military to enforce it? Like, why, mm. why do we assume, just assume that, that you can't do that? The whole article is built around the assumption that military force, that force wasn't an option. We're like, well, of course, Article 2.4 prohibits that. And then we're like, well, has that always been true? You know, has international law always not allowed? So it's international law doesn't allow you to enforce international law. Has international law always said that? Um, and so we started just moving back and trying to figure out what international law was like. And Scott went and read, was like, okay, Grotius is the father of international law. So Scott, I was like, oh yeah, I've read Grotius lots of times. So I don't know that there's much that interesting there. He's like, I'm gonna go read Grotius. So he read it and he came back and he's like, this guy is such a warmonger. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? You know, because international lawyers sort of assume that that Grotius, he's like the father of just war theory. And like, he's a good guy, right? He's like the father of our field. He's like, no, if you read this, this guy is terrible, um, like awful. There's like all kinds of bad things that he he's he's advocating. And and among them, war is the main way in which international laws are being enforced in his theory, like the opposite of what we have today. So we had the kind of opposite ends of the spectrum marked out at that point, like here's our world where international law can't be enforced with force, and here's Grotius's world where the whole theory of international law is founded around this idea that international law um, is enforced by force, like that legal rights, all legal rights are enforced with military force. And then we had to kind of fill in what, what, how do we how get one got to the other to here? Yeah. So that's then a great a story. Of like trying to unwind it and kind of unpack it and go back. And then, yeah, then we tripped across the Kelly Brand pact. Um, and, uh, I, I remember, so our kids, part of the reason we enjoy working together, our kids are the same age. So, um, our daughters are now, I think they're both 21. You look like I, 20 years younger than Scott Shapiro. I think it must be, it must, so I'm finding this hard to believe. You must, it like, it must be like Twitter has aged him prematurely. <laughs> I think Scott presents as an old soul though. He, 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 he cultivates he that look. Exactly. He really he does. does. He, he does. cultivates it. I know, it's true. <laughs> Um, so, so I remember actually, uh, you know, I'd been doing a lot of reading to try and trade. I went, I went from the present back and he went from history forward, like those sort of like kind of trying to figure out meat in the middle. And, um, and I was reading back and, um, and came across the Stimson doctrine in response to the, uh, the, um, invasion of Manchuria where Stimson says, Hey, we're not, you know, gonna allow you to change, um, rules on the ground with force. And it referred to this thing called the Paris Peace Pact. And I was like, what the heck is this Paris Peace Pact? Like, I've never heard of this thing before. Um, and it turned out that that was the Kelly Brand Pact. Um, and so I, I remember showing up to pick up my kids from Scott's house and like telling him about this. And he was so excited. <laughs> so that, that was sort of where we, that was where we, 
we sort of began so, just kind of working and trying to figure out how that how that actually happened. So I want to ask you about Calabrian because your the the conventional way you learn about Calabrian, if you do at all, is that this is this very naive post World War One idea in the sort of height of the foibles of the League of Nations. They actually had an international treaty banning war. And look, wasn't that cute? Only right. 13 years later, we have World War II. Oops! Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. weren't those, weren't those post-Great uh, War French cute? Um, yeah. And your account of it is much more respectful than that. And yeah, basically yeah. takes the view that there's a straight line between Calabriand and the UN Charter, and that the yeah. UN Charter actually meaningfully does prevent wars. Um, yeah. And so I want you to walk us through that and, you know, Defend the honor of, of Messrs. Kellogg and Brianna. <laughs> well, actually, Kellogg was a terrible person. Yeah, he like, really was. Oh, totally awful, like horrible human being. And Brianna wasn't so great himself. I mean, it was, it was not as bad as Kellogg. Kellogg, he like swears, he's like nasty. He's like trying to prevent this thing from happening. They're each kind of trying to box one another in. So it, they, they, they were very like, part of the fun in writing this story was like discovering how like people you thought were wonderful turn out to be like horrible human beings. <laughs> and like, sometimes they do good things despite themselves. And um, yeah, so the, the Calabrian pact, what we argue is like, so obviously we had learned it the same way everybody else had, which is like, this is like the signal example of how ridiculous international law can be. I mean, what were they thinking? A treaty to outlaw war between the great world wars like completely ridiculous. This just, just shows how useless international law is. And so when we tripped across all these references to the Kelly Brand Pact, we're like, that's interesting. Like, I thought this was a total joke. Um, like, they're treating it as if it's like real. And <clears throat> so we started like looking into it further. And what we discovered is like, it was the most ratified treaty of its time. Like it was, it was extraordinarily celebrated at the time. It was seen as this really important move. It was a, it was a response to an effort to try and prevent something like World War One from ever happening again. But the conclusion we came to was that while it was like this important document, and that and the movement it took this whole like non-governmental organization movement, like all these groups working together to try and get it um, both the agreement um, written and, you know, made available for states to sign to get all these states to sign. But what they hadn't realized was how much the entire international system depended on the right to wage war and, and depended on war as a way of resolving disputes and righting wrongs. Like that was not just like, uh, it was not just like it was okay to wage war, but like the whole system was grounded in an idea that the way in which you enforce the rules is through war. And so when you pass this treaty, that's like, okay, we're not going to wage war anymore. But you haven't really thought through like what is going to come in in its place. Like, 
what are you going to do instead when somebody breaks the rules? Like, how are you going to enforce those rules? Like, what if somebody wages war despite the fact that they signed a treaty saying they were not going to wage war? Like, what are you going to do about that? And they really hadn't fully thought it through. And they hadn't realized that what they were doing is kind of taking the linchpin out of the system. And the whole system kind of falls apart. And they hadn't really thought through, like, if you're going to flip the right to wage war to a prohibition on war. And part of what we try to show in the book is like all the other rules of the system kind of flowed from that right to wage war. So if you have a right to wage war, you have a right legal right to conquest that you can't make it illegal to you. Can, there's no such thing as a crime of aggression. Um, states have to remain neutral. All these rules kind of follow from that. And when you flip the core rule, but you haven't thought through what the implications are for everything else. What you've done is kind of you've pulled the rug out from under the international system. And you haven't put anything in its place. And so part of what we try to tell the story of is like they sort of that dawns on them that they haven't really figured it out, <laughs> like that they changed this rule. But like there's a lot of things they haven't figured out. And so that story, a big part of the story is like they're working out the intellectual foundations of what it becomes our modern international order as they're trying to sort out what flows from the idea that war is no longer allowed, like what else has to be put in place to make that work. And it takes them about, um, you know, from the signing of the treaty up really until the dawn of World War II to kind of sort that out and figure out those rules. And then, of course, World War II happens. And the argument we make is that, you know, Therefore, they have at that point worked out all the answers to those questions. And so when the UN Charter, when it comes time to write the UN Charter, they now know <laughs> that it's not enough just to say no more war anymore. You need you need to have a, the rest of these rules in place. And they've kind of figured out what those rules look like. Um, and that's why the charter works. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, coming out of the Kellogg-Briand Pact and this idea and like, World War II, World War One is like often called the first modern war, obviously, and like all of these kinds of ideas. Um, but every every major war since then has been really remarkably different in terms of the technology that it has used to wage war. And yeah. so one of the things that I think is super interesting is you talk about it pulling the rug out from underneath these rules, but I think simultaneously also the very definition of war vis-a-vis -vis technology is completely changing. Um, yeah. And so how you define what counts as war, not only from like, I mean, not even getting into the fact that like we have like the conflict in Vietnam and everything else, right? Like not even like kind of getting into that type of thing, but really like, although maybe we should get into that, maybe you want to bring that up, but like the idea of what technology does to war between in like the, in the 20th century, I'm just so interested in how that underscores these international law definitions of what counts as war and yeah 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 absolutely so one of the key ways in which that happens like so I, one of my areas that i teach is cyber and so one of the big questions we're trying to figure out is like what does international law mean in the cyber context like what is a violation of article 24 um in a, in in um in cyber um so like, so I actually wrote an article with Beck, with um, Rebecca, Rebecca. Who you mentioned. Yeah. So on the on automated weapon attack. systems. Well, we did one on the law of cyber attack. It was, oh, it was one great. of the first articles that came out on sort of like, what is the international law that applies to cyber? Like, how do we take this set of rules about 
um, about what, you know, that what it means that, that say you can't wage war, um, uh, you know, Article 2.4, how do you then transplant that to a world um, of cyberspace where like things are not generally going boom, but you're doing a lot of destructive things. And how do we think about these rules in this like totally different um, technological environment? And, you know, I, those rules are still being worked out. I mean, one of the key things um, we came, one of the key conclusions we came to is that one of the problems that we run into in cyber is that generally the harm is not large enough to reach the threshold of Article 2.4 in the UN Charter, that is a prohibition on use of force. And so, so much of what's happening is so-called below the threshold. So below this Article 2.4 threshold, which means it's not regulated by the rules that generally regulate the use of force. And so part of the problem that we're facing is that this is a body of law that we haven't, we haven't really had to answer these questions so much before because technology now has opened up this space that you can do so many of these aggressive actions um, in cyberspace below the Article 2.4 threshold. And we just haven't had cause to kind of work out what those rules look like before. And so we're kind of having to figure it out on the fly you know, as as things are happening. I mean, today there was the there was the sanctions um, for solar winds um, against Russia, and one of the key ways in which the U.S. is that. dealing with this is basically saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna just put in place sanctions, and we're gonna put in place travel restrictions, and we're gonna do indictments, and you know, we're not gonna treat this like war. We're gonna treat this like criminal activity um, instead." So, but you're right. I mean, technology totally challenges all of this. Drones too, because drones are, are strange in that it allows you to pr project force around the world 24 seven and your own people are never at risk. Well, and to that point, sanctions have long been criticized because they put civilians and individual people that are like just through, through like acts of God and circumstance members of a certain nation and then it like denies them access to food and medicine and other types of things and so like those are using them as enforcement mechanisms is like always been controversial because you're not punishing a government necessarily you're punishing a people and if you have like you have an autocratic kind of or oligarchic kind of like structure the people at the top are always going to be fine mm -hmm. and you punish the people that are just there um, because of circumstance. 100%. And that that has been one of the big and, and really effective critiques of sanctions. You know, for instance, the childhood um, death rate in Iraq skyrocketed during U.S. sanctions, you know, and, you know, lots of people not able to get adequate food um, or medicine, really horrific um, effects. And um, what I would say is, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, is that Sanctions technology has gotten a lot better over the last several decades, and uh, we're we're increasingly able to um, target sanctions at the particular people who are yeah. responsible for the policy. And so, like that is much better, I think, than what than the problem you're describing because you can go at like the people actually who crafted the policy and say, like, you know, you want to go to your like multi-million dollar flat in London or in New York, you can't anymore. And, you know, you want to travel to see your kids at Oxford or Yale or Harvard, you can't anymore, right? So 
it, it, and that actually has, um, that actually hits the people you want to hit um, rather than the people you don't want to hit. And, and I do think that that um, is a really important innovation in sanctions technology. And one that, you know, the U.S. has really been um, in the leadership on that. And I think that that's been really um, a, an important development in sanctions technology. And I think we need to do a lot more of that. But but what you're describing still is a problem. I mean, this is a problem in Iran right now. You know, there a lot of people said, look, the U.S. sanctions against Iran was making the COVID crisis way worse because, yeah. you know, people were not able to get, you know, a- adequate access to you know, oxygen and um PPE and other things that they needed to to be able to to actually treat people and protect medical personnel from from uh, the pandemic and um, you know and and you know on top of it people not being able to get ad- adequate food etc. So yeah, it's it's continues to be a problem even though we now have these new technologies for. More, Thank you for, for introducing me to this notion of sanctions technology. I knew that those things existed but i didn't have a word for it so, or like words for it so thank that that was awesome thank you so much christopher yes. argyris so christopher who has been agitating for ona's presence for a while <laughs> uh uh we uh uh we grant hey, him the that's awesome dog-eared copy the genevieve della fera official <laughs> question string here yeah uh, so christopher the floor is yours uh, yeah. for however so much time you may choose to use it. That's Thank great. You, you so have much. the UK edition. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's, it, yeah. I, I didn't know it had a different title until I started to Google it. Well, yeah, and you know what? That's because the British did not, they found this title way too, like, radical. How a radical that. plan to outlaw war remade the world. They're like, well, that's yeah. way too American. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just, 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 just for the American audience, the British one says, and their plan to outlaw war. Which yeah. <laughs> Wow. I, typical British understatement. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So I gave a talk in Germany this morning, like a ridiculous hour from my bathroom. And <laughs> I when I was giving a talk and I said something about like preemptory strikes and like like all of this type of and like people seemed like they were like, Wow, that's a lot of like strong language. And I was like <laughs> Is what? it like? I mean, I'm being <laughs> metaphorical. Like, I'm not like being serious about like Facebook having preemptory strikes. Yeah. Is this a is this a thing? Like, is I don't know. You know, I I all I know is that we had long conversations with our publisher, and they they were very much of the view that this was that how a radical plan to outlaw war remade the world was way too like aggressive of a title. So I don't know if that's a general thing. Maybe some of the listeners will be able to tell us. And if we have listeners, uh, you know, who are who have a view about that, but yeah, no, it's uh, it, it does seem that they they value a little bit more understatement, and the Americans are all about like let's just go for it. <laughs> so Una, the, the the backstory for me having the book in from in the UK was that um, I met Scott uh, when he was uh, doing his visiting professorship in the summer at uh, UCL. So um, yeah. So I knew Great. Scott before this, also before the, before his uh, persona on uh, in, in lieu of fun, and and the only thing that I thought was a little different about him was um, in in our in our like small lecture, uh, he was sitting on a chair. I don't know what the PC term would be, but um, we used to say Indian style. He's perched. He is. He yeah. perches. Yeah, perched, he's like a little per- bird. Yeah. Perched on the chair. So yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. All right, all right. So, uh, 
So my first yeah. question would be, uh, what is the utility of the Security Council uh, mechanism for legal war when uh, that's very rarely um, followed through on these days and most countries doing any kind of uh, military action would just uh, invoke Article 51 self-defense, even if it's a preemptive strike. Yeah, I mean, you point to a big problem. So, I mean, those for those who are maybe don't know as much about the Security Council, just to, like a little bit of background. Um, so there's the prohibition on going to war and there's just very limited exceptions. So the exceptions include under Chapter 7, you can get authority from the Security Council. Security Council votes on it. Um, and the five permanent members can all veto that. So U.S., Russia, China, U.K., France. Um, and so you have to get Russia, China, and the U.S. to agree in particular. Those are the hard ones. And um, so, for instance, U.S. wanted to do something about the, the chaos and humanitarian crisis in Syria. Russia, of course, vetoed it. And um, China went along with the veto as well. Um, so it's very hard to get um, authority under Chapter 7 ever to, um, to intervene to address uh, uh, violations of the peace. There have been some, you know, so the, the intervention in Libya um, to um, address the breakdown there, what was believed to be a humanitarian crisis, was authorized uh, by the Security Council. So you actually did have all of the uh, members allow it to go ahead. And some think that in part because there at least some in, some argue that that intervention exceeded the scope of what the Security Council authorized and that that's part of the reason China goes along with Russia in, in refusing to allow um, allow intervention in Syria. But putting that to one side, so that is hard. It's not that it never happens. It does happen, but it, it's harder to get it um, through because you have to get these states that don't agree on very much to agree. Um, and then the other exception is Article 51, which you mentioned. So Article 51 basically says, hey, you know, you don't lose your right of self-defense. Like if you get attacked, you can respond. And um, as you rightly point out, states have been increasingly interpreting things as falling within Article 51 more and more and more. And so there are a lot more instances where states are being um, are taking action and then they're claiming that they're doing it under self-defense. So just to give an example, um, US uh, military operations throughout the Middle East right now are happening under, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are happening under Article 51. So US interventions in Syria, for instance, are under Article 51. Some of them are under consent. So our operations in Iraq right now are, are with the consent of the Iraqi government. Um, and I think you point to a real problem, and it's something we, we motion at at the end of the book, but I think we could have said more, although it wasn't as far along as you know we, we now know it to be, which is that this exception is being expanded and expanded and expanded to the point where it's almost like the exception is gonna, is threatening to swallow the rule. Like if Article 51 is sort of infinitely flexible and you can kind of argue that anything is in self-defense, then then the rule note, then the prohibition on use of force no longer has any meaning. Um, and, and that's something I do worry a lot about. Um, and, you know, that's why when the U.S. makes what I think are sort of spurious claims to self-defense, I, I get upset about it. So uh, the recent, uh, relatively recent decision 
by the Biden administration to strike um, the uh, facility of non-state actor group um, affiliate or su supported by Iran located in Syria. Um, the U.S. Um, claimed that that was an act of self-defense under Article 51. And a lot of us um, wrote after that saying like, yeah, that's kind of a stretch. Like we, we, at least from what we've seen, obviously not having seen the internal intelligence, it doesn't seem like it properly qualifies under Article 51. So yeah, this is a worry. And I think the U.S. has kind of unfortunately been at the forefront of kind of stretching the limits of Article 51 in ways that, that are potentially pretty dangerous. So unfortunately. All right. Um, so how is what you called outcasting uh, help to rein in and deter rogue regimes like Syria, Myanmar, North Korea, Russia, and China, who essentially wage war or subjugate their own people in an internal form of conquest and pacification? Yeah, so um, we talk a bit about this. So let's just take one example. So Russia. Um, so one example we give in the book is um, what happens after Russia seizes um, Crimea, so which part of Ukraine. Um, now, obviously, Russia is a nuclear state, very powerful state. Um, so one possibility would be to send in the military, but um, but uh, but nobody wanted to do that because nobody wants a confrontation with Russia or military confrontation with Russia. And so what the world coordinated around was a series of sanctions against Russia, um, pretty substantial financial sanctions, which were really designed to have more strong down the road effects. So one of the challenges of designing sanctions against Russia is that Europe depends a lot on, on energy resources from Russia. And so you don't want to sort of be shooting yourself in the foot by putting in place sanctions against Russia when you need to buy oil and gas from Russia. So a lot of it was sort of designed to kind of be backloaded and have uh, kind of long-term effects on Russia. But there were a fair number of significant upfront effects as well. Um, and that was meant to sort of exact a cost against Russia. Um, that is, deny them the benefits to which they'd otherwise be entitled, which is um, full membership in the international economic community. It was also cut out, uh, uh, kicked out of G8, now the G7. Um, so there were a number of sanctions put in place against Russia to outcast it for, for its behavior. But it is difficult to outcast big states like that, powerful states, nuclear states with, with, um, with big militaries. So we talk a little bit about the too big to outcast problem in various ways in which you can kind of overcome it through collective action. Really what it requires is as many states as possible to join in those sanctions as, as you can get. Um, and unfortunately, in that case, what happens is China comes in and buys the oil that, that everybody else is refusing to buy from Russia and so undermines the sanction to, to some degree. Um, there are a number of states, too, that it's, you know, we ta also talk about the difficulty of states that are effectively voluntary outcasts. So like North Korea, pretty cut off already, like kind of hard to sanction, hard for U.S. to sanction them anymore. Like, we don't, do a whole lot, like we don't do a whole lot of business with them. Um, and so like one thing that's interesting about outcasting is it's kind of like, it's not an infinitely powerful tool. Like at a certain point you run out of things that you can outcast them from. If they're not part of the global community, if they're not benefiting from being a part of, you know, the trade regime and, and interacting with the rest of the world, you can't really take that away from them. Um, and, uh, and that is one of the limits of outcasting. And that's why we see the limits of our ability to have an impact on North Korea. Like that's just the reality of the fact. 
um, we but can't do a, as much. But that's yeah. not different from any other form of governance in the sense right. that if you have, you know, a sovereign state with a police force, there's a certain amount of rogue activity that take place, takes place, whether it's, you know, uh, isolated uh, defiance of law or transnational organized crime. I mean, yeah. the fact that your enforcement mechanism is imperfect uh, only means we're dealing with human systems, I think. I'm so glad you say that because it's it's so often the case that, you know, people are like, well, international law was broken this one time and therefore all of international law is kind of like, we, you know, we used to- I, I gotta say, I, as somebody who used to make arguments like that when I was young and childish, <laughs> I, I have to say the miracle yeah. is that you can get on an airplane and it can take off in one country and land in another country. Yeah. And every time you do that, you are benefiting by international law because there is some treaty regime that is allowing that to happen. And yes. when you make phone calls and they're answered in one country and made in another country, you're connecting via telecommunications regimes that are not simply telecommunications technical protocols, they're international law regimes. And yes. when you trade and you don't pay, ta pay tariffs at the exorbitant levels that we had them, you know, only relatively recently, you're benefiting from a different international law regime. And I, I just think the, the argument that international law isn't law is just wrong. It's, it's like yeah. you can argue all day about why it works and what the mechanisms and to what extent. I mean, the argument that you would have with Jack Goldsmith uh, and Kurt Bradley, uh, who, you know, who argue that it's really a reflection of state interest and nothing more. OK, that strikes me as a reasonable argument. But the idea that it doesn't exist is just farcical. I'm so glad you say that. And I and I'm gonna like record this and like play it back for all <laughs> for all the doubters and the haters out there. Yeah, I mean you're completely right. I mean, I think part of it is that so much of it is invisible. Like we take it for granted because it's such a part of our lives. You know, you put a stamp on a letter and mail it to your friend in London, like that's international law too, right? So it, it's all around us in ways that we just don't really fully appreciate. And um, I also think yeah. the, the other factor is that when it's working, when it's working at its best, it never gets understood as international law. It gets understood yeah. as the implementing legislation of the country in which you happen to exist. So if you torture right. somebody, um, you are not going to be prosecuted under the torture convention. You're going to be prosecuted on twenty under eighteen USC twenty two forty one. Right. And no one's going to say, and by the way, that statute is implementing legislation for U.S. obligations under the Torture Convention. But it is. Yes, you know, that's and, right. And so you have this perception of your functioning under U.S. law, which you are. Right. And um, uh, but the U.S. law exists because of an international law requirement that we are complying with. 100%. 100%. Yes. That's exactly right. I love this. This is great. Yes. Um, and I actually think that even if you were to say that international is just a product of, of state self-interest, 
you still would come up with a very robust regime of international law. And I think actually, so Kurt Bradley and Jack Goldsmith are now my co-authors. And so, you know, we write together a lot now. I, I like to think that they've come around on this um, and, and maybe they think I've come around. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think, and I think that states create those because it's in their best, I mean, it is in their best interest. They create robust international legal, legal regimes because, I mean, this is part of the insight that Scott and I were trying to build on, but all my work has really tried to build on is like, international law isn't about doing something that's not in the state's best interest. The whole point of international law is to have a tool for achieving what's in the state's interest. It just happens to be that lots of times you can best achieve what's in the state's interest by doing it in a collaborative and cooperative way. And sometimes international law is the best way to do that. Um, and yeah, that that's like, that's core to understanding how international law works. And so this whole idea that international law is somehow against US sovereignty, which is sometimes you hear this idea of like, it's like undermines US sovereignty. And like, it's the opposite of that. International law is about actually creating tools for us to achieve what's in the best interest for the United States. It's not undermining what's in the best interest of the United States, it's quite the opposite. And, and understanding it, that what you just said um, is just crucial to being able to actually use this tool in ways that are really productive and good for, for Americans. Quick correction. Um, uh, I said 2241, the torture statute is actually 2340A. 2241 is the aggravated sexual abuse statute. Uh, Christopher, you have, I, I just don't like being wrong. Um, uh, Christopher, uh, you have the, um, you have one more question, which yes. uh, I've been, I have declined to ask myself because I wanted to defer to you on it. All right, thanks so much. Uh, so we've had uh, Stephen Wertheim on the show, uh, Ona, uh, mm -hmm. and I think at some point during Pugilism Week, we wanted to try to get you to debate him on this point about, uh, he, um, you know, the this, the idea that um, if, if you don't if you don't just control for wars of conquest or territorial exchange. Uh, he would say that wars have increased in the post-World War II or post-Cold War um, era, um, whereas your your guys' data pretty clearly shows uh, that, that, it, that it decreases. Um, so I'd just sort of like you to respond to his, um, his, hmm. his criticism or his, his counter-arguments. Yeah, so there are a few things to say. So we're really focused... Um, on whether the thing that Article 2.4 is trying to prevent works, right? So what 2.4 is about is prohibiting states from using force against one another. And, and, and so it's prohibiting international armed conflicts. And there's no doubt that that has significantly fallen during the post-45 uh, era. And the post, um, that since that norm has been in place, it has been remarkably successful. And the thing that we document in the book is also conquest, which is the natural follow-on from that, has fallen dramatically. What we acknowledge, and we actually, we have a whole chapter called Why Is There Still So Much Conflict? Um, that's literally the title of it, um, is that um, just because you've actually succeeded in um, reducing international armed conflict doesn't mean you've stopped all wars. Actually, what you've ended up doing is there's been an increase in what political scientists refer to as intrastate conflict. So wars inside states. And we try to talk a little bit about why we think that's happened and actually why the success 
of the prohibition on wars between states might actually even have helped fuel the increase in wars within states. So I'm not sure we actually necessarily disagree as much as maybe um, uh, it might look like on the surface. Um, we're just saying the thing that they were trying to prevent, wars between states, has mostly been prevented. Not entirely, not 100%, but mostly. Um, but but there's nothing in the charter that prohibits wars within states, and a lot of those have gone up. And, and, and there's lots of reasons to think about why that might be the case. Can I just add a couple nuanced nuances to this question? Because... Yeah, I, I think the debate is large. I've been thinking about this because of the French Village uh, uh, show that uh, I've been watching and doing a podcast about. Um, the concern of the internationalists, as you call them, was preventing giant wars of territorial acquisition that cause for example, Germany to invade France and take it over. Right. Um, wars of territorial acquisition, notwithstanding Crimea and Donbass and, and, you know, little stuff around right. uh, just don't happen anymore. Right. Right. And Which is remarkable. Right. I mean, like, like look at human history. There's never been a time in human history where that has been, where it's been, where where like geographic control has been as stable as it is like never right so that it is like a totally remarkable thing and we don't take it for granted because that's the world we live in it but, seems, like, to, it, it seems to me the yeah. better argument for Stephen Wertheim would be the following it's an argument he doesn't make which is that actually that decline you know Ona and Scott can say whatever they want, but that decline was caused by the nuclear umbrellas of the United States and the Soviet Union and the sort of dual hegemonic, um, and, and it has nothing to do with Article 2.4 or the UN structure. It has everything to do with the sort of bifurcated nature of world power and the same forces that led to that led because the two these two countries knew they couldn't attack one another without dusting the world. So what did they do? Well, they funded each other's insurgencies around the world. You get the Sandinistas and Fidel Castro and you get, you know, coups in South America and right. in Iran um, and Afghanistan. And so the same forces that lead to a decline in uh, interstate war, particularly of territorial acquisition, lead to a rise in kind of proxy fights. Um, and none of this has anything to do with international law. It has to do with the relative deterrent stability of nuclear standoffs. And yeah. so Stephen yeah. doesn't make this argument. I think it's a much better argument than the one he makes. So let's imagine that he makes it how do you respond to that um, as a uh, as an alternative explanation for the pattern you describe, which I think is unambiguously true? Yeah. So on the nuclear question, we get this a lot, you know. So like, isn't it just nuclear weapons? Um, and I guess a couple of answers to that. Um, one is, well, there was a period of time where the U.S. had sole control over nuclear weapons. And in the past, if a country had had that kind of control, it would have used it for massive territorial expansion. Like it would have taken it over lots of territory. 
And what does the U.S. do? Instead of taking over significant territory, it, it actually gives everything back. Um, so it, and it was motivated in significant part by this set of views about what is legally required of it. Um, and so it wasn't the nuclear weapons, we argue, that was really doing the work. It's these legal norms and the nuclear weapons are then being used to reinforce those and uh, those, those legal norms. On the, on the um, rise of, in, of civil wars, interstate wars, and also wars fueled by states basically funding um, insurgents in other states, we don't disagree with that. In fact, again, we have a whole chapter where we say that's actually a rising problem. Um, and uh, and you know to say that uh, that wars between states are declining doesn't mean that like all problems are over. We've got this rise in, in wars within states, which are really um, devastating. And and part of the problem and something I've worked a bit on is that we don't have any rules or we have we have inadequate rules for holding states to account for the things that groups that they fund do. Um, and so, you know, so the, the law of state responsibility is, I think, inadequate. And so states can fund groups um, and actors within other states to do all kinds of terrible things they couldn't do directly. Um, and that's a problem. And I, you know, as an international lawyer, one of the answers I have is all like, we need laws about that. Like, you know, so it's not that the rules that we have, you know, it's not the UN charter is a problem. It's just that we haven't solve this other problem that has come along that we ought to have rules about. Um, so yeah, that's that's my view of it. Richard Wattenbarger doing his best impersonation of Daniel backlit with a dark shirt against a dark couch. It's very impressive. He's wearing a blue and white shirt, Ben. It's not very dark. Everything looks dark when you're that backlit. Yeah. Um, me, I know. <laughs> um, thanks. I am. Um, I, I just started reading this book a few days ago, uh, The Internationalist, a few days ago, and I, I can already tell that this is this is a book that's going to change the way that I think about some things, and um, it also is giving me discipline envy because it just uh, makes me wish I were thirty years old and I could. Uh, 30 years old and I could go back and start over again. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, but one of the things I, I wanted to ask about was actually stylistic. And one of the things mm -hmm. that struck me was that the very rich descriptions that of events that you begin each, uh, at least the first two chapters with, and it's not at all what I was expecting in a, in a great sense, actually. And so I'm wondering why you decided to begin with chapters where you use such rich storytelling. Yeah, I mean, we were trying to write a book that people might want to read. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and like we do a lot as law professors, we do a lot of writing articles that, you know, that I wouldn't say are page turners. Um, and so when we set out to write this. Don't let book, Bruce Ackerman hear you say that. Sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> he and I've written one of those articles together, actually. I know. Um, I'm just teasing. I like I like Bruce's writing. He's, he's actually a very good writer um, and he writes a lot of books. Um, but I think Scott and I aspired, like we're figured if we're writing a book, one of the reasons to write a book is you can reach a different audience. And if you want to try and reach a different audience, you want to write so that people can read it and actually find it enjoyable. So we were trying to do something that was fun to read. And we were also trying to do something that was serious. Um, and that, that, that was a challenge. That's why it took us six years to write, write the darn thing. But yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it. That's, that's great. 
We have referred to Daniel, and now we invoke him. Here he is. Look, he's, he's not even backlit. He's not or even backlit, yeah. yeah. None of okay. none of the tropes are in play. <laughs> he did this just to frustrate me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to return to a topic that I've asked previously about on this show, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on the current tensions between the United States, Taiwan, and China, and the implications for the international order given these tensions. And I will just use this occasion to announce that tomorrow uh, on Lawfare Live, we have the great Julian Ku, who will hmm. be uh, addressing hmm. exactly uh, this issue for an hour and taking all kinds of uh, questions from you guys. So please uh, do join us on that for that. Yeah. So, I mean, just to answer that, and that, that's interesting to have a whole session on it. I mean, you know, in some ways, this is a part of a longstanding tale um, of, between, of relations between U.S. and China. And, and actually, the book does talk a little bit about this because we talk about the fall of Chiang Kai-shek and his fleeing to uh, Taiwan and, and the misjudging of America because the U.S. was actually the one that insisted on the Chinese seat on the Security Council not realizing that the government was about to fall um, and that it was fleeing to Taiwan and that the government that was going to be eventually holding that seat in the Security Council was not the government of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, but was the government of this uh, Communist Revolutionary Party. Um, uh, I, you know, it, this, has been, this has been a problem that's been happening for a long time. It, it keeps... Um, flaring up and then dying down. I, I was honestly very scared during the final days of the Trump administration that this would be a moment, if, if, if China was going to act, it wouldn't have been a bad time to do it. Um, we were so kind of navel gazing and worrying about our own, um, you know, our, our own troubles here at home. It would have been a difficult thing to respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, and I have to say, I breathed a big sigh of relief when we got to January 20th um, without that happening. And I think the fact that we're back to this kind of what has been a long time simmering kind of um, uh, uh, hostility, uh, but not outright conflict is probably where we're gonna be for a long time to come, I suspect. Just a note, I posted in the chat a wonderful little piece by Matt Waxman on Lawfare uh, a couple years ago um, in which Matt dug up the authorization for use of military force that Congress passed in the 1950s to give Dwight Eisenhower the authority to use whatever military force he wanted to defend Taiwan, which yeah. was, of course, then called Formosa and um, which uh, is still in effect today and has never been repealed. Talk about aged AZUMFs that Congress never bothers to take off the books. Um, the Taiwan AUMF is still there. And if you think that other AZUMF are broadly worded, just check this one out. So, so I thought that was one that was withdrawn, but I may be misremembering it because we did I also have a mutual defense treaty and the mutual defense treaty was withdrawn by Carter. Um, uh, 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 and um, so 
uh, and it's it's we've had this debate lately about like lingering AUMFs um, because uh, all this talk about withdrawing, you know, getting rid of the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, and then people are like, wait a minute, there is the Middle East AUMF from the 50s. That one's still on the books. I see. Um, maybe I misremembered the, the article of. that. Um, uh, uh, I, I had thought it was, oh, Congress eventually repealed it yeah. 20 years later. I'm yeah. sorry, I, in the, in the list you of things. You were testing me, you were I'm, testing I'm, me. Well, you know, I'm just gonna get things wrong and see how many I of was, you, you correct. The reason um, that I disappeared, Ona, was like, I have to like come up, like I'm like redrafting all of my tests for my final exams for property oh. and like info privacy. And I had to take a call from my dean and we were like talking oh. about it at the end and we're just like, all we're doing this weekend is like writing our exams and it's just like how brutal it is uh, to like, I know it's brutal to take an exam, but it certainly takes more time to write and grade an exam than it does to take an exam. It's just, more. yeah, it's so awful. Anyways, Ben was yeah. testing you. John yes, Bordeaux, yes. you get the last question tonight before the bonus Scott Shapiro dishing section of the show. <laughs> Thanks. I, I appreciate that. I, I think my favorite of these shows are when I, I don't understand 40% of what's being talked about. Uh, this qualified. Thank you very much. This, this been a, <laughs> uh -oh. someone, someone asked someone asked in the chat if there's going to be graduate credits um, awarded for this uh -huh. evening. And I, I, I second that. I think it's required. So I, I, I apologize. I haven't read your book yet. I will get the U.S. version because I'm stuck here. Um, awesome. It's, it seems to me, and I'm not a lawyer, um, that the enforcement measures we use in international law, such as sanctions, always fall on the population more than the government. The government mm -hmm. can, you know, kind of shelter themselves from natural effects. And the previous administration seemed to embrace that and say, yeah. yes, we're doing that intentionally for regime change. So now we're left in the place where there's a clear message from this country that we use international law in defense of Western interests, which is basically to replace your government if we think it's too autocratic or not going along with us. How do we counter that going forward? Have we just lost any sort of, um, I don't know, an immoral stand? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that that is one problem. And then the other problem is that the last administration also used sanctions against, for instance, the International Criminal Court judges and prosecutors. Um, so used sanctions are supposed to be used for violations of international law against the very institutions of international law. Um, I mean, I think the only way to fight this is through consistent messaging and trying to chart a different course. But I do think it, you know, I wrote at the time, I thought that these were bad moves because it, it undermines a tool that's really essential to the effectiveness of international law. And, and that um, is really, um, I think, dangerous and, and bad for those of us who believe that international law generally is a force for good in the world. So right. that reminds me, sorry, yeah. I really want to... Okay, we have to wrap up. I know, but I really quickly want to say that I so I, I was a I went to law school at Georgetown, and they require an international law course to graduate. Um, and I took mine with Julie Rose O'Sullivan, uh, um, who taught an entire course about the ICC, um, and cool. uh, I just like. Yes. Anyways, I have so many thoughts about the ICC in the context. If like it was a mm -hmm. what I what I didn't realize was that the ICC is a weird integration into like it's a weird entree into international law. It if is. You're going, so does yeah. that make sense? So totally. like 
yeah and so i was like is this international law because this is effed up and like i don't understand (laughs) this sounds like colonialism i don't understand what's happening um but anyways it was a very it was a it was a super for another day we will have you back on i'm happy to come back and talk about that another day it's actually one of the few things i think scott and i might not perfectly agree on too so could get us to come on and argue about it although i'm not sure pugilism yeah. week yeah we'll bring this is what we're gonna yeah so, let's write about the international criminal court in rwanda let's do that that I, sounds like a great idea i would just say yeah. about the uh m- more eccentric attempts in international law that you know there are people who want to overuse the criminal law for things that the criminal law is not good for and there yeah. are people who want to make everything justiciable in civil litigation which is also not a good idea it is but nobody says there's no such thing as criminal law or that right. criminal law is kind of a fraud right um and the yeah. the, the stupid thing about our our debate about international law is this, and I, having participated in some of the stupidity when I was young and stupid, <laughs> I, I, I understand where people are coming from about it because there is a community that wants to use international law to erode, to, to, to normalize a whole lot of things that states will reasonably want to right. do differently from one another. And so I totally get it. Yeah. But it's analytically wrong to say that there's not international law. It's just not true. I so agree. And I love hearing you say that. That just makes me so happy. You just made my week. There you go. <laughs> so All right. Great. So here's the before we wrap, we got to ask the Scott Shapiro question. So Scott has this persona. Um, in which he pretends to be the most erudite, stupid person in the world. Oh, you mean his Twitter persona? Well, there's the Twitter persona, but he also (laughs) comes on in lieu of fun in that that role and gives a PowerPoint presentation about his, you know, thought about whom he's going to vote for and weighs the pros and cons and explains to people that unless it's framed as a trolley problem he really can't understand it um and then there's yeah right you laugh so do we but are we are we are we idiots element of the persona where he's um uh um you know uh trolling people like i have this game with him where we troll rick grinnell together yes um, i've seen which which you know I know what I'm doing, but I don't quite know what he's he's doing. doing. So here's the question. How much of that persona is actually the Scott, you know, like, and how much of it is like a, you know, like Sarah Silverman has the Sarah, the public Sarah Silverman, uh, and then, you know, who she really is. I think so. I think that he is trying to sort of turn everything on its head a bit. Like it's not, like, you know, you all, you know, I'm sure you've met him. Um, he's not like that so much in person. I've never um, met him in person, by the but way. But what he, what, what he, he, I think what is interesting about Scott is he never, he doesn't take anything for granted. Like everything, he doesn't assume anything is true until it's proven, you know? And so, and so he, he it, it, I think part of it is like, he's willing to entertain the absurd as if it was real. 
um, and sort of think through what it would mean if that was if the absurdity was actually real. So um, I want to introduce like another another way of thinking about what Scott does, and I just dropped it in the chat, which is the Dungeons and Dragons various alignments of how people align themselves. And there are mm -hmm. law versus chaos on one thing, which are kind of categorized as lawful, neutral, and chaotic in Dungeons and Dragons games, and good versus evil, which is good, neutral, and evil. And I think that I am a chaotic neutral. Like, I just like throwing things out there and just like... See what happens. Fucking with yeah. the status quo and seeing what happens. And I'm not like, I really don't mean ill, but I don't necessarily mean good either. And I think that Scott Shapiro is a chaotic neutral also. That's um, right. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? It so does I make put, sense. Yeah. Well, he's also kind of trying to turn everything on their its head. Like, you know, make take embrace the absurd and then show its absurdity by embracing it. Right. Uh, and, yeah. And right? yet when you write with him, when you write the internationalists, he's not trying to like like no. troll this, you is, know. this is not like his twitter feed no right i mean yeah. he, like he's capable of turning it off and just but when he does his podcast on you know jurisprudence which by the way is fabulous yeah it's also yeah. hilarious and eccentric yeah um and so like i i the thing i can't figure out entirely is when the persona is on and when it's off well, that's part of the fun, right? He, he, that's exactly what he's like trying to, he's, he's trying to make, keep you guessing. Um, and, and, and given like the reactions he sometimes gets in his Twitter feed, people really have not figured out how to tell which is which. Yes, it's <laughs> No one gets more mansplained to than Scott yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And like, he deserves it a lot of the time, but mostly by people who don't really understand what he's up to, you know, and that's, I, I that's part of what he loves you know we Just, are going to leave it there yeah. ona hathaway you're a great american it's great to see you and Thank hear your you. voice i'm sorry i had to disappear for part of the part of the part of the show but i yeah, this was awesome. already so informative and i like i'm this is just so great to see you. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's so much fun and happy to do it anytime. So we will take you up on that because we are still yeah. not allowed to have fun. And as long as we are not allowed to have fun, we have to do things in lieu of fun. Yeah. Tomorrow we will be back with Walter Schaub. It is kind of amazing that we have not uh, had Walter Schaub on before, um, but uh, that will change tomorrow. 22 hours and 50 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we can have Dungeons and Dragons alignments as a new kind of like ast astrology, I think. And many fewer international <laughs> wars between And states. many fewer international yeah. wars, so many fewer. And yes, Bob Herzog, uh, the next time we have uh, uh, going pugilism be week, we are totally having uh, well, the now Scott I'm like, versus I'm like claws, I'm claws out for like, for like ICC, <laughs> like 
Ona and like Scott. Like I also have strong. I just have the strongest feelings about this, and so like I, I've never gotten to get them out anywhere because this isn't my area. And I would love to hear this. So we're well, gonna have to do in. this. Yeah, yeah, let's be do it. Super we fun. Will-